Let's pray together before we get started. God, speak to us now. Speak that in a way that we might hear, open our ears and our hearts that your truth would go deep in us. Help me, God. Give me more of your spirit to proclaim your word that we would become more faithful laborers in your great harvest. Amen. A few weeks ago, something rather incredible happened in Minnesota that got Molly and I really excited. It seemed almost impossible at the time, nearly miraculous. The sun came out and warmed up Minnesota, and the snow melted. And the reason why we got so excited is because one of our favorite things to do in the summer is plant and manage a garden. We love to spend every day checking out our garden, walking through and checking out the little seedlings popping up. And halfway through the summer, you see green leaves and stems all over the place covering what was at the beginning just a big black blanket of dirt. Now, in the middle of summer, everything from potatoes and green beans and tomatoes and peas and carrots and beets and kale and spinach and broccoli and cauliflower and cucumbers and squash are all around us though they're not close to ready. Many of the vegetables are still hiding under leaves. You have to peek the, pull up the leaf to see just a little vegetable growing, or some are buried beneath the dirt, and you have no idea if they're ready or not. You just trust the process. And then later on in the summer, it's almost time, and we walk through the garden, and we'll see one cherry tomato plant that looks like it's flourishing so much. There's little green tomatoes all over it. And then you see one, one bright red little cherry tomato. And it's too tempting to pass up. You pick it off and pop it in your mouth. And it bursts with amazing summer flavor, which is just a foretaste of the buckets full of tomatoes that are to come in the following weeks. This season, Molly and I got to plant a little bit bigger garden than usual. We had a little more land made available to us this year. And Molly's father-in-law said, go ahead and plant however much you want. So we took his word and we filled the whole plot of land with a garden. Way more food than we're going to need. But we're excited to work all summer long in this garden so we can share it with all of you. We share the fruits of our labor, but also... We're delighted to be able to share the metaphor of gardening with you as we learn about the growth of God's kingdom. Jesus uses these phrases all the time like sowing and reaping and, <clears throat> excuse me, weeding and guarding and protecting and relevant for our text to today, harvesting. And so we want to be able to share these experiences with you as a metaphor for these biblical truths. Molly and I plan to do all the work all summer long and then invite you in at the end of the summer to harvest along with us and enjoy the fruits of our labors. And this is the metaphor that I think Jesus is using in our text today from Matthew chapter 9. For thousands of years, God has been doing this incredible work of planting his own garden, cultivating and planting and weeding and fertilizing and growing and now he says the harvest is ready and he says, come into my garden and enjoy the fruits of my labor. So let's turn together to Matthew chapter 9. 
verses 27 to 38, and walk with the Lord of the harvest through his great field and see the ripe fruit that's ready for us to enjoy. Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 38. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that nobody, no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've been walking through the book of Matthew over the last several months, seeing how Jesus is the king of all things, the creator of everything. He has authority over everybody. And more recently, we've spent time in this extended section from the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 all the way up through chapter 9, highlighting Jesus' authority, how it covers everything. So he came onto the Sermon on the Mount and he preached with authority as a lawgiver and a judge. And then he came down from the mountain to put his authority into action on behalf of his people. And Matthew structures these stories of nine miraculous events in groups of three, separated by a call to discipleship after each one. And today we're at the end of this section of Jesus doing these miraculous displays of his power and his final call to discipleship. As we'll see at the end of the section, though, it's not so much submit to Jesus and listen to what he says and follow him around, but there's this beautiful picture that's been going on since the foundations of the earth that he is calling us to partake in. Just like a gardener walking his friends through the garden, showing all the delicious fruits and vegetables that are about to be harvested. Jesus is walking his disciples through the world saying, look, here the harvest is ready and it's going to be a harvest like you have never seen before. So our main point of our text today is that by the authority of the Father, Jesus calls his disciples to labor in his great harvest. Jesus is calling all of us, you and me, his disciples, to labor in his great harvest. And we'll split this text into two parts. First, we'll take these two healings and see them as a sampling of the harvest, as though Jesus is walking through the garden and lifting up the leaves and saying, here's one, it's ready, 
are digging up the soil and saying, look at this. My field is full of these. And then we'll look deeper into the call of the harvest. Who is called and what's the task we're called to and what is its purpose? So first we'll sample this great harvest together and then look at the call to the great harvest. So let's go back to verse 27 and get a little taste of what is to come. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. So we'll stop there before jumping into the mute man as well. But keep in mind this imagery of Jesus walking through the garden and sampling the fruit of the upcoming harvest. Jesus wants to show his disciples there is a great harvest to be reaped. He's getting ready to gather people into his great kingdom as the scriptures promised. There's going to be faithful people from all over the lands brought into the kingdom. So the disciples might be wondering, where are all these faithful people? Where do we need to go to find them? Should we go travel the long journey to Jerusalem, to the big city, and find some influential people who can come in and join this great work of God, add a little legitimacy to this small movement we're starting? But then with all of these healings of ordinary, even unclean people, Jesus is saying, no, guys, look, it's right in front of you. The harvest is everywhere, and it's coming right to us. Look at verse 27. As Jesus passed on, these two blind men followed him. We've seen through all of these miraculous healings that people are following him, and they're bringing one another to him. It's like the wheat want to be harvested. They're jumping out of their roots saying, pluck me, take me. They're so excited. The harvest is so ready. They're jumping into the bushel baskets. This is the type of harvest that God has been preparing for us to come in and reap. He created this world and then he plants people in this world. He watered the entire planet at one point and applied various forms of pest control and then he shines the sun's light into the world to bring the growth. And now it's ready. It's ready so he can bring his people into his kingdom. He's done all the preparation work to stir up the soil and plant the seed into our hearts. And now it's ready when these men cry out, have mercy on us. They show they are ripe, revealing their readiness for the harvest. And so in verse 28, Jesus asks one more question just to test the ripeness of this one tomato that seems so ripe. He asks the blind men, do you believe I am able to do this? Do you believe I am able to do this? I love the simplicity of the question. It's so simple, but it holds so much truth within it. It seems like anyone watching should have been able to answer, well, of course, Jesus, we all know you're able to do this. We've been following you for weeks. You've healed everybody you've looked at. We know you're able to do this. Even the bitter Pharisees in verse 34 should be able to look at Jesus and say, yeah, we don't like it, but we see you're able to do this. 
But the word believe means so much more than an observation of a truth and intellectual assent to that. We have this, we make the same mistake all over in our own society. Walk around the streets of Rochester and ask any random person, do you believe in God? And the vast majority of people are going to say, yes, I believe in God. But their affirmative answer really means more, I think that this stuff all came from a higher power somewhere. Yes, I can believe that. And there might be an afterlife too, and I believe that would be a great place to go after I die. But Jesus' question, do you believe, means way more than that. We've seen in this context of him displaying his authority that what he's really asking is a question of surrender to his authority. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe he has all authority in heaven and on earth, even over your busted up eyes and your failing bodies and your desperate circumstances? Do you believe he is in control of that? And are you ready to surrender your life to him? and his care over you. These men answered, yes, they are ready. The fruit is ripe. So Jesus says, well, then according to your faith, be it done to you. This is a rather incredible and convicting statement. Jesus gives them healing based on the amount of faith they have. That's not just to say to promote a prosperity gospel that says, The amount of health and wealth in your life is proportionate to the amount of faith you have. He's not making that point. He's trying to show his disciples that the greatest faith, the ripest fruit, is not to be found with those Pharisees, but right here in front of you. There is incredible faith where you least expect it. Look how ripe for the harvest is right among these poor, lowly outcasts of society. Some people think the blind people are just receiving the just punishment for their sins, that they deserve to be blind because of the sin of their parents or themselves. And Jesus then affirms their great faith, saying, no, these guys have great faith. Let me show you. And he heals them to prove the harvest is ready right before your eyes. And then he tells those guys, interestingly, after he heals them, be sure not to tell anybody. We could talk about the messianic secret and why Jesus tried to keep people from talking, but I just more confused about why wouldn't they tell? They were blind and Jesus just transformed their life. These guys walking around with sticks, running into things and people walking, trying to find their way suddenly can see. They can safely navigate around obstacles. They can go to the marketplace and look at all the shapes and colors of the various things to buy. They can look at the sky and see the beautiful blue, clear sky with huge, fluffy white clouds. You'd imagine they're just jumping and beaming. And God, did you did you see the trees? They're incredible. They're they're green. Yeah. <laughs> so what? You couldn't see that before? No, I couldn't. This guy healed my eyes. It should be our natural response when Jesus so dramatically changes our lives that we have to tell everybody. Jesus' fame is spreading throughout the land. In fact, it's spreading so much that the harvest is bringing itself into the field or into the baskets. 
Look at the next section in verse 32. As they were going away, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So verse 32 says that this man was brought to Jesus. We saw a few weeks ago the, the paralytic man brought to Jesus, but he could, couldn't walk. So of course he had to be carried to Jesus. This guy could walk. He could see. He could see great crowds following Jesus. But others are urging him, come on, you need to go see this guy. He can help you. Jesus' fame is spreading so far and wide that as he walks by through the different corners of his garden, the wheat are jumping up and grabbing other wheat and tossing them into the bush, bushel basket with them. All of these hurting and sick people everywhere see hope in Jesus. And all of them coming to him makes me wonder myself, if we, the church, are supposed to be like Jesus, and he's called us to be his representatives here on earth, we are his ambassadors, we are his harvesters in his garden. And he says the garden, the harvest, is so ripe. It's all around us. I wonder, where are the people in our lives who are jumping at us? Because they see in us, like they saw in Jesus, such heartfelt compassion and ability to help them. Why aren't they jumping in our baskets like they did for him? I think if we're being faithful workers in this harvest... We should be seeing a lot more of this happening in our lives. Jesus says it's there for the reaping. Just grab a hold and take it. But we're still too blind to see it. And so were the crowds following Jesus. They just couldn't see it until Jesus showed them. He lifted the leaves and said, here it is. Look, it's ready. He healed this demon-possessed mute man, made him able to speak, and the crowds marveled. In verse 33, it says they've never seen anything like this before in their lives, in all of Israel. Which is interesting because you can read ancient historical documents and the historians say, oh yeah, this guy was known for his exorcisms and this guy went around healing people. So clearly they've seen things like this before in Israel. But Jesus is not just doing what they did. He's doing it in places they didn't see. He's doing it with power they've never experienced. He's showing them right in front of them. There is a harvest. Open your eyes to see it. They just need to look in the right places. Dig up the soil and see the abundant treasures that are there. And then when they finally saw it, they marveled. <laughs> you just... Like a blind man, I now see it. They're everywhere. I couldn't see it before, except for the Pharisees. They continued in their blindness. They suggested that Jesus was doing this by the authority of Satan, that it was just a trick of the devil. They couldn't deny the power that was on display. Clearly, Jesus was doing some incredible things that nobody could deny. But they could deny where his authority came from. This is exactly opposite the faith of the two blind men. It's more than knowing Jesus is able to do something mighty and powerful. 
The Pharisees knew he had power. So again, this is a question of authority. Who is Jesus? Who do you understand Jesus to be? And how will you respond to him? The blind man and the mute man, they showed their rightness to come into a life of abundance, a fuller life in Christ by surrendering their lives in faith to him. And the the Pharisees refused to submit. They refused to acknowledge that Jesus is king and ironically suggest that he is a representative of Satan and not God. It's ironic because we see they are more blind than these two blind men and more mute than the demon-oppressed man to see with their eyes and confess with their tongues that Jesus, this man right in front of them, is Lord over everything. It's ironic because in their blindness, they are the ones following Satan, the prince of demons. Friends, let us not be that type of people walking through these lives as though we can see bumping into things all over the place and arrogantly saying, I'm all right, I can see. The harvest is all around us. And God has strategically placed every single one of you in a different corner of his garden, in your families, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, in this field of people. And he calls you to surrender to his life and be a servant in his great harvest. So let's look at this call then to the great harvest starting in verse 36. As Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, 35, throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's look at the last verse first in verse 38, and then we'll come back and look at what he's calling us to. What does this work look like? As we've already been seeing, Jesus is showing us the harvest is plentiful. It's all over the place. He doesn't need to say it again, but he does to make this statement, to make this contrast about how much harvest there is and how few laborers there are. It's all around us, and it's in places that we don't bother to look. Or we have seen it, and we don't go there because it makes us uncomfortable. I'd rather not hang out with those kind of people. But Jesus says there's a great harvest, and he's not going to do it alone. He calls his disciples to be laborers in this work. And we saw a couple weeks ago at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, how he equips us laborers to go about this work of the harvest that covers the whole earth. He gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us and equip us. But notice at the beginning of the call for laborers, it's just like what we saw in Acts before he sent his Holy Spirit. He says to wait and pray. Before we get to work, we're told to pray. This is incredible. There's so much work to be done. He just showed us how ripe the harvest is and how desperate he is to have more laborers. He says he's given us his Holy Spirit to send us. 
So we are inspired. What are we doing wasting our time sitting in a school to sing together and teach? We got to get out there. We should just jump up out of here and get to work. And he says, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. As we think about why he would tell us to stop and pray, we should be humbled. We can't do this work alone. This is God's work. It's his field. It's his harvest. He could snap his fingers and the harvest would be done. So why is he calling us? Who are we? He doesn't need us. He could call anybody else in this city to do his harvest. He could raise up any other church in this city. He doesn't need Redemption City Church as though we're the ones who are most faithful. He can depend on us. So let's not be so arrogant to think that we are the ones who got it right and we are the sharpest sickles out there to bring in the harvest. First, we must pray. We express our utter dependence upon God. We thank Him for such an opportunity to work in His fields. We marvel that He would use us to do it. We pray earnestly. This word translated pray earnestly suggests this begging, pleading, God help us. That he would bring in more partners, bring in more members of this church who are specially equipped to help us with this work. Bring us more churches in this city to help us represent him and call more to Christ. Bring us more of his Holy Spirit to open our eyes even further and see what we are missing out on. All of this happens not through our own effort, but through prayerful dependence upon God, the Lord of the harvest. But when it is time to get to work, what is he calling us to do? What does this look like? Now we can look back at verses 35 to 37. 35 is almost just like chapter 4, verse 23, in which Jesus led us, or Matthew led us into this ministry of Jesus. Right before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew writes that Jesus went throughout all the area, all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every affliction and disease. This was the ministry he embarked upon himself at the end of chapter 4, and now we're seeing a transition, and we'll pick it up again next week in chapter 10, a transition to Jesus displaying all of this authority that he has. And he says, here, you guys take, take the reins, run this ship, lead the harvest. And this suggests then that our work is to be the same. Teach, proclaim the gospel, help the hurting. There's this debate in evangelicalism today over what the primary mission of the church is. Are we called to proclaim the gospel or help people? Are we to teach one another the truths of the scripture or serve the poor and give, bring mercy to the hurting? But it seems from this call to go to work in the harvest as Jesus did, we are an extension of his authority. We're to do the same thing, teach and preach and, and heal disease and affliction. And it may look a little different than he did it because he was establishing through his apostles a the church laying a foundation on his word and then releasing us. So it looks a little different, but all three of these things go hand in hand. 
we teach these marvelous truths of Scripture of the way that God created the world and the most abundant life comes when you live in line with the way God made it. But then we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ who says the only way you can achieve that abundant life is through Him, the one who lived perfectly, died and rose from the grave to take care of all the weeds and pests of sin and death. And then we go out. The church is called to go out into the world and serve the poor and the sick as a foretaste of the world to come. As a way to authenticate our words of proclamation and teaching to give real personal relational weight and meaning to our message of love. We can't proclaim the gospel without living it in compassion towards others. And who are these people we're called to? The ones we're called to take this message. As we've seen, the harvest is all around us. It's wherever we are. It's the people that God brings into our lives. And so verse 37 says, as these people followed him, wherever he went, he had compassion on the crowds. He looked at their suffering and he had compassion on them. Do you see the people in your life and have compassion on them when you look in their eyes? The word compassion suggests this gut-wrenching sympathy, this heart-wrenching anguish that forces you, that it compels you to do something to relieve you of the pain and to bring them relief. The Pharisees didn't have compassion. All they were concerned about was how smart they looked, how much power they had. They were tasked with caring for the sheep of Israel. And Jesus shows up, looks around Israel, sees all the sheep and says, where are your shepherds? Who, who's taking care of you guys? You're hurting. This isn't right. He looked at them and had compassion on them because the Pharisees were there condemning them. So he saw their hurting, entered into it, and welcomed them into a place of hope and healing. When you show yourself to be confident in Christ, you know Christ and his gospel and what he has done to transform you, and you're compassionate towards others, then I think the harvest will draw right into your basket. Molly and I used to be so confused over the last few years of why we seem to attract so many hurting people. It was kind of this joke. Why are all these people climbing into our lives and they're just busted up, broken people? With all this baggage, we spent so much time counseling them and feeding them and letting them sleep on our couch, having meals with them, teaching them. We don't have time for anything else. I got ministry to do. I think you see where this is going. <laughs> but after reading this text all week long, praying over this, suddenly I realized this is the harvest. This is what he's calling us to. People all around us are hurting. Mayo Clinic brings for us millions of hurting people to this city every single year who are looking for healing and hope that we know if they get it, it's only temporary. And they're going to be longing for something even deeper, something that only Christ can give, ultimate hope and healing, lasting satisfaction in his eternal kingdom. 
The harvest is all around you. Will you close your eyes even further to these opportunities? Or will you open your eyes and your heart and your home to welcome the harvest in? You don't need to be an evangelist, an expert evangelist, or an eloquent preacher. Just be confident in Christ and compassionate towards others, and I guarantee the harvest will come jumping into the basket. This may surprise many of you who have only known me a short time, but I used to be an incredibly shy and terribly introverted person. I know, Scott, there's a difference. But I hated being around people. They exhausted me. I was so scared to share, to talk with anybody. When I was little, I couldn't order a hamburger, a teenager, as in little, a teenager. I couldn't go to McDonald's and order a hamburger because I was so afraid. I would encourage my brother, who's four years younger than me, hey, will you get me a Happy Meal, something? I had such terrible experiences with public speaking that I swore I will never have a job where I have to talk with people, let alone stand in front of them while they all stare at me and I'm the only one talking. And you all know how that worked out. Because God called me to work in his harvest and he equipped me by his spirit to do so. It didn't all happen at once. If you knew me 10 years ago, you know me as quite a different guy too. But it started out with just learning how to look at people in the eyes. I used to walk down the hallway, and if I saw someone coming, I'd quick put my head down and stare at the floor. And God said, look at them. Just look. You don't need to go through the four spiritual laws with them. Just look at them. So I looked, and I saw eyes of humans, of image bearers, people made in God's image. And then he convicted me maybe a year later, start saying hello to them. It's so, okay. I look at people and say, hey, how you doing? And then I realized I just asked an open-ended question that they might respond to. So I had to learn to listen when I said, how are you? And they pour out their heart. And you listen carefully and hear a heart and you grow in compassion while you're in the word and among his people. And you grow in confidence to delight in this harvest work. And he didn't just call us preachers to do this, but he calls all of you to grow in confidence in Christ and compassion towards others. Here we see in this text, Jesus is calling all of us to the harvest. It is a plentiful harvest. It's everywhere. There are people all over this city who are waiting for you to show them the love of Christ. But the laborers are few. Are you going to join in this harvest? Do you see it? Maybe before you answer those questions, you should ask yourself, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is able to accomplish this work he has set out to do? Do you believe that God has been doing this work from the beginning of time before you were born so that you would get to this day that you could harvest in his fields? Do you believe that Jesus is the king and will you surrender your heart to him? We're all desperate for mercy in some way or another. And he is infinitely full of the compassion that we want. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So come and rest with us. 
and realize then that this rest is a rest of easy labor. Labor in his harvest. He doesn't call us to rest as in go into retirement, live a life of easy leisure, doing whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. He calls you to work with your gifts, with your skills, around the people in your life for his harvest. It is a joyful and easy harvest. It's right in front of you. It's easy for the pickings. So ask yourself, who are the people in your lives? Someone's got to be coming to mind right now that is hurting or confused or scared, desperate for you to help them. Start with a hello. Look them in the eyes. Invite them to lunch and just listen to them and hear their heart with compassion and confidence in Christ. This work is for your joy. You don't need to be afraid. But even more, it's for God's glory. Notice in the last verse, who is the owner of this harvest? It is God's harvest. He is the Lord of the harvest. He has done all this work for millennia to gain for himself a crop yield bigger than any farmer on earth has ever experienced. He deserves the fruit of his labor. He is worthy to receive the reward of his toil, and he calls you to be a servant to bring in his reward. So that one day, if you're a faithful laborer in Christ, you get to carry your bushel basket right to his throne and lay it down at his feet with your head bowed, and he says, look to me. And when you look up, he's smiling at you. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Will you join this great and joyful labor for his glory? I hope you will. So let's get to work by doing as Jesus commanded and pray. God, you are incredible to do all this work throughout history to bring us to this point that we could be laborers in your kingdom work. And I thank you for this church, these people that I get to labor alongside. It's not just me. It's not just Jake doing this work, but all these fantastic, gifted, spirit-filled people whom you placed in strategic places around this city, that we could joyfully work together. Thank you for these people. And I pray for more laborers. I pray, God, that you would bring more of them to join us on this joyful journey. And where we are still blind, God, open our eyes to see the harvest right in front of us. Soften our hearts to welcome them in, to see with eyes of compassion these hurting people who are ripe for the harvest. And would you reward us with a flavor, a foretaste, of the world to come, that we would be able to stay diligent until the end for your glory, that you would receive the reward of all your labors. Amen.